Pachango. Chris, my name is John. I'm sitting here on a snowy rock bluff in Vancouver, British Columbia, looking up at some eagles floating around. Had a tiny microdose of mushrooms before coming down here. And just wanted to say I uh, really appreciated your most recent Roma talking about experience versus money. Having just uh, driven down the Olympic Peninsula of Washington and Oregon and California coast with uh, a lover of mine whose work visa got cut here in Canada a few months ago and having to say goodbye. Uh, it's been nothing but eye-opening and beautiful and painful in a way. And I just want to say a lot of uh, things you were saying really resonate with me. So thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, John. I will keep doing what I'm doing until I stop doing what I'm doing. <clears throat> I promise you that. This is uh, a really cool episode with a woman named Liza Marin. I met her at a New Year's Eve party. And uh, within a few seconds of speaking with her, I, I was already thinking, ah, I'd love to get this woman on my podcast. How can I propose this without coming across as a total New Year's Eve party bore. But she was just so, you know how you, you meet someone just like pouring yourself a glass of wine or grabbing some food or whatever, and you start talking with someone and the conversation goes deep immediately. <clears throat> and it's not because anyone's pushing for that. It's just because neither one of the people in the conversation is afraid of depth. Um, that's what happened with us. I, you know, I I don't remember what the small talk was. And, uh, and then um, Liza mentioned that she was, has, had, I think it was like the first day after she'd retired or she'd retired that day from running a nonprofit that she'd founded years ago and... I guess she agreed or decided to end her involvement at the end of the year, hence the New Year's Eve party. And she mentioned that, and I think I said something about, wow, that's a big transitional moment for you and, you know, this sort of stepping away from something you've been doing for a long time. And and she said, yeah, and, you know, my mother died a, a month ago, and that was a really you know, interesting time for me to be with her as she was dying. And, you know, and, and like the conversation just kept getting richer and deeper and more revealing of the fact that I was talking to a very special woman or listening to a very special woman. And so I did ask her to be on the podcast and she agreed. And I drove over to her place, uh, few weeks later and uh you know and she was like oh, sorry i'm running a little late doing the chores and i helped her uh, feed her horses and she had some dogs and some chickens and uh 
really cozy. I mean, her house is kind of like that conversation. You know, you just go into this someone's house and you just see there really good books all around and it smells good and the furniture looks comfortable and you can just tell like a lot of life has happened in this place. And, um, and she made, she had made some muffins for us and some tea and it was just so comfortable and such a pleasure to get to know her a little bit. And I'm really happy to be able to share her with you. She's a, she's a really cool lady. She's, um, (laughs) well, she's a County commissioner and there were some moments where I felt like, should I cut this out? Should I edit this? I don't want to get you in any trouble, but mostly things I was saying, not things she was saying. Um, and I even contacted her afterwards and said, eh, I think, I don't, I think I mentioned psychedelics or something at some point. And, uh, and she's like, no, no, it's totally like, you know, I, I got no secrets. She's, and then we talk about her predilection for, uh, for bad boys and outlaws and, uh, how that shaped her younger days and, uh, how she came to the San Luis Valley and worked as, a a ranch hand and a cow poke. And, um, yeah, she's had, uh, some adventures. She's done a lot of hitchhiking when she was young, uh, as I have, I think we're roughly the same age. Um, anyway, Liza Marin, really cool, really cool person. And, uh, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, things to mention, a little housekeeping, uh, I've done one of those long-promised DJ CPR episodes, uh, which I'm making available for paying, supporting subscribers to the podcast. Uh, It's kind of like, I envision it as like I do a little radio show where, you know, I talk about why I chose this song, what's special about the song, things you might not have thought about, something in the lyrics, something, you know, why it's and how it's related to other songs. Um, and I organize them thematically. So there are some where it's um, <clears throat> songs that are sort of commenting on uh, life in general or relationships specifically or breakup songs, or songs about politics and war. Um, Anyway, each episode is thematically organized. The first one I did was songs about relationships. And and it's educational, and that's sort of the idea with a free use of uh, copyrighted material, because I'm talking about it and, and trying to teach something about each of these songs. So um, that's what's going on with the DG, DJ CPR series. The first episode is out. I'm going to do another episode, maybe even today. I, I really enjoy doing those, uh, just playing some music and talking about it. So that's more bonus material for those of you who chip in to pay for gas. Uh, and then the other thing I just want to mention uh, briefly is if you're interested and available to join us in Montana this summer, please check out the webpage uh, that describes the Budokan Sexadon retreat 
You'll find that. Just Google Budokan, B-U-D-O-K-O-N, Sexoton Retreat in Montana. It's in June. We've got, I think we got a dozen people who've um, paid their deposits and are definitely coming. And I think we've got room for, you know, another half dozen or so. We, we cap it at 20. So uh, we've got a really nice, interesting group of people who are coming. And I hope you'll consider joining us. That's at the uh, Sexaton Budokan Retreat in Whitefish, Montana, this June. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to move right into this conversation with Liza. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you for your attention. As always, I hope spring is shaping up nicely for you. All right. I'm sitting in the kitchen with Liza Marin, uh, a wonderful woman. I just met, what, two nights ago, three nights ago? About that. At a New Year's Eve party. And it was one of these awesome things where we just start chatting. And within 20 minutes, I'm like, God, I got to talk to this woman into being on my podcast. I'm, I'm that. I'm the podcast parasite. I just go around like, <laughs> would you please be on my podcast? You're interesting. Um, anyway, we so many things in, in those few minutes that we were talking. We talked about our hitchhiking background and your love of horses and your work in sort of the land. And, and your what was the organization you told me? It's like a countywide... Yeah. Um, San Luis Valley Local Foods Coalition. Local Foods yeah. Coalition. So what, what, and you've been doing that for how long? Uh, for about 13 years. And you started it? I did. And what was the, what was the purpose? What, what motivated you? Yeah, so, so at the time I was working at a healthy eating active living job and the San Luis Valley Local Foods Coalition came about really organically out of that work. Appropriately. Right? Yeah. <laughs> because we actually held a food insecurity gathering and folks came and, a lot more people than we expected. And we were talking about how we're this rich agricultural valley, and yet the food that we have access to is, is you know, fast food restaurants and corner stores and big box stores, right. and nobody has access to the food we grow here. And people were really wanting to change that. And so we responded to the community voice and kept meeting. And then after a couple of years, we became a nonprofit and just worked on putting the infrastructure into place to create a local food system here. So in that sense, the San Luis Valley is like um, is like Guatemala or someplace where all the good stuff that they grow gets shipped out and the local people are left with processed nonsense. Um, I, I was amazed. The first time I went to Guatemala, I couldn't believe how hard it was to get a good coffee. Everyone was drinking Nescafe. Oh, no. And yeah. probably instant. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah. And that was and the people had been convinced that was coffee. And yet they're growing the best coffee in the world and shipping it off. Anyway. Uh, you get it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I get it. Um, you're also a county commissioner. That's true. So you're a, an excellent person to, to sort of help us understand what is going on here. This is the poorest county in Colorado, right? Yeah, we, we deal, I mean, I, I like to preface with we have, we are the richest in natural resources. Right. We, this is an amazing place. Again, like Guatemala. Right. <laughs> <laughs> However, if you look at our, you know, income stats, we are, you know, not only are we one of the poorest 100 counties in the nation, but we also are um, experience persistent poverty where generational mm. poverty takes place here. And so we kind of have that, you know, interesting paradigm of beautiful access i mean there's a lot of people who hunt and fish and garden and gather and forage and 
and they actually, even though with their low incomes, they have a rich life. Right. And that, you know, so the stats don't tell the story of this place. I think about that every time I read, you know, somebody uh, talking about how the world's getting so much better because so many millions of people have moved out of extreme poverty around the world in the last year, right? Uh, Steven Pinker has made a whole career out of this. And what they don't understand is that a lot of those people were not part of the currency economy because they were growing their own food and had uh, chickens and rabbits or whatever. And as you said, they were foraging and hunting. And now they're part of the economic statistics because they've been driven off the land and they're working in some sweatshop in a, you know, in Phnom Penh or something. And now that becomes statistically someone being lifted out of extreme poverty. Even though their quality of life is in the toilet. plummeted, exactly, yeah. right? And, and so it's sort of a, a metaphor for, for a lot of the statistical nonsense, that self-congratulatory nonsense that, that we see. Um, but anyway, so your point about people living, having a high quality of life with low income, uh, I get that too. Yeah. yeah, and there's plenty of removal from the land and kind of that story you're talking about here too. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be disingenuous about the suffering that people have sure. in in poverty because um, it is a reality. Right. But. Yeah, there are a lot of people living out in the valley um, who just have very little income, a fixed government income or something, and the land's so cheap they just move out there and build a shack and uh, it's it's a persistent problem here in the San Luis Valley. Yeah, and I would say those people though are doing, you know, are practicing self-sufficiency which which mm. is a goal for folks and they are um coming up against barriers that I feel as a county commissioner we can change. And for instance, mm. for example, the state says that you have to have a um on-site wastewater management treatment system to the you know engineered to the tune of twenty thirty thousand dollars which is an impossible barrier for those folks you just described and yet they are able they could you know work with a vault toilet a composting toilet um an incinerating toilet you know things that we don't so really black water has become something that's really um exciting Mm. to me to work on and there's some momentum around the county and we have this beautiful um beautiful uh community of natural builders and off-gridders and 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 green building that's that's really phenomenal and i think we're one you know a very special place on the planet for that yeah and um just opening up the regulations because what i've learned as a county commissioner i just was sworn in in january of 23 so i'm coming on my first year anniversary congratulations thank you so i'm a freshman uh, commissioner, you could say, but I found that really a county commissioner is a administrative arm of the state. We have to administer state statute. We can be more restrictive, but we can't be less restrictive. Mm. And so, you know, an attitude might be, oh, well, it's state statute, this sanitation law. And my response as a community organizer and community change maker is, okay, let's change state statute. And there's a big appetite for that. And so we're working, um, we're working on Regulation 43 to change that so that it's a local control issue and that a county like Sawatch can make their own decisions about mm. who they permit for vaulting and alternative systems. Right. As opposed to um, just sticking with that law. So 
Interesting. Yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> and, and there, there is a tradition of that here in Sowatch County, right? We're one of the few counties in Colorado without extensive building codes. We don't have any building codes well, other than plumbing, plumbing and electrical. and electrical, yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, you can build your house. You don't need an engineer, an architect, all that kind of stuff. If the roof falls on in on you, it's your problem, I guess. Well, there's been very little of that. You know, yeah. there is some people who probably need some regulating, but for the most part, the people that are building, you know, their own alternative buildings are actually building very resilient, much mm-hmm. more, much higher efficiency, like zero, you know, zero carbon footprint homes. And it's something, you know, that's why we have these Crestone home tours so that people can see what's going on in this cutting edge of building out here. Um, but I, you know, I was one who pushed back on building codes and, you know, there's a big, big pressure from outside. And so actually this county gave me permission to, um, spearhead a task force to just talk about, you know, it's coming or, you know, how do, how can we have some sovereignty here? How Mm. can we, how can we create what works for us in Swatch County as opposed to a one-size-fits-all kind of code that is stamped on us from the state or the right. nation? And which people in this county aren't going to be able to afford, right? If people have to hire architects and engineers and all that, it's just not going to happen. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, it's, it's a cliche, the old, you know, crisis and opportunity are the same word in Chinese, right? But there's also a, there's a feeling here that that I've had, which is that this is like a little pocket where there's there's nothing. I guess there's not enough wealth or not enough attention or whatever that that it kind of gets overlooked, and and so people get away with stuff like building these beautiful houses that you could never build up in Breckenridge or you know somewhere uh, you know with more kind of going on in terms of money and attention and all that it's so it's again it's an opportunity because we kind of get away with stuff here yeah that's true and i also don't want to leave out the fact that we are a rich agricultural community yeah and so there is a you know a whole nother culture here of people that have been you know stewards of the land and living on the land for generations generations and you know specifically the hispanic um folks and and um you know, in center, we have a very different community than we have in Sawatch. We're kind of a ranch community in the Sawatch area where, you know, Crestone is kind of a artist and spiritual center. And then down in center, we have a lot of, um, you know, workers on the land, not all of them, you know, landowners. Right. But, you know, agriculture rests on their backs. You right. Know? And so there's quite a quite a diverse and beautiful story here yeah. in this county. And, and ancient, right? I mean, it yeah. goes way back. Was it you? I, I was talking with someone, I think, at that same party about the Jewish heritage here. It wasn't me, but I'm aware of that. And um, I think, you know, from what I've heard, I got to go on a really neat tour of churches in San Luis um, maybe 10 years ago, uh, hosted by an elder who really knew his stories. And he was telling that story of how really in the Catholic, you know, traditions there, there's a lot of the Judaism, you know, kind of the menorah and the candles and yeah. woven into that. And there's actually a um, a gene for breast cancer that is right. connected to the DNA of that, um, you know, ethnicity. Sep- and Sephardic it's, Jews, was it? Yes. Out of Spain, right? I think so. Yeah. And so that has, you know, reared its ugly head here. And there's a lot of um, folks who get tested for that gene because they, you know, want to ward off um, disease. So. Yeah. 
But that's, you know, just another example of that Jewish influence that's in this community. And someone was telling me that <laughs> some of the oldest houses have like a secret room that people didn't even know about. It was forgotten about over generations and they, they discover it and there are menorahs in the room. There's mm-hmm. like a, a hidden worship space or something right well it wasn't safe to worship as a jew back then. yeah yeah certainly not in spain and not here either i guess yeah yeah it's fascinating how much (laughs) there is to know about this place have you read um what's the name of the book it's ted conover oh yes about the san luis valley yes um now i'm going to forget the name of it but it was a fascinating book where he lived in the flats in outside of uh in Corneos county and experienced the homelessness there and and just talked about you know this whole contingency of folks that are you know some struggling with you know ptsd or or other mental health issues some just extreme poverty some just not wanting to be found and we have that very similar kind of in our mineral hot springs uh kv estates community in swatch county so i read it with great fascination and learned a lot about you know it was a great insight into that community of people i can't remember the name of the book either but he's a good writer yeah um so but i didn't want to leave behind the the uh food co-op were there people growing organically at the time, or did you incentivize people to sort of change their practices? So we have been, one of our core values, one of the things we did in 2013 was create this set of core values that asked all these questions, like, does it get people's hands in the soil? Does is it is it good for the environment? Is it good for community? Is it good for families? Does it you know, does it honor all cultures here? And we we framed all the work that we did around those values. But there is some beautiful pioneers of organic agriculture here. Um, Ernie and Paul New, Tom McCracken. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of good organic, you know, George Witten, um, the Kretzingers. There was, a, mm. there was a good, strong foundation of organic growing going on um, in the San Luis Valley. And one of the things that I've always loved to do in community work is to find the champions that are already walking that walk and Mm. then support support them with energy and resources right and that's that was the approach to the local foods coalition so our our um goal you know our mission was to foster an equitable local food system in the san luis valley and and um we did that through creating infrastructure so so um the Valley Roots Food Hub, for example, created has a fleet now of eight trucks, and they started out with a hundred thousand dollars worth of sales in 2015. But now, you know, they're you know upwards of two million dollars in sales, which all you know, 65 percent of that is the cost of goods sold going into the pockets of family farms and ranches. Hmm. And it may not sound big in the economy of you know the world, but in the economy of the San Luis Valley, it's significant. Right. And um, and that really provided you know a mechanism to get the food from the farm gate to the plate. And that didn't exist before the Local Foods Coalition was in place. So that's the kind of thing we've been working on. Um, education was really important. So the Rio Grande Farm Park was a place to for people to grow um, and learn to grow regeneratively. And, you know, we're not 100% there yet. It's very interesting that the folks that really were attracted to this, you know, community farm space were folks who came from agrarian uh, cultures who didn't have land. And, you know, it's kind of a farmer's market scale growing space. And um, so, you know, since 2012, we've been, you know, working with a group of uh, Guatemalan families that were 
looking for a place to grow food, and this worked out, and they've been with us ever since. I did retire uh, four days ago, so <laughs> days I'm, ago. Talking, <laughs> I'm talking. I'm uh, talking, but, you know, the Local Foods Coalition will always be, you know, I'm a community member now that is part of that coalition instead of a leader of it. But um, the, uh, you know, the Mayan families have been growing food with us since 2012. Uh, Isabella, you know, she was 12 years old when she came. Now she's, you know, she's she worked with the Rising Stewards, you know, helping us teach young people how to grow food. And, and it's just a beautiful story. And then we also have um, Mexican immigrants and then, you know, some locals from the community who really wanted to get involved as well. But... Um, so it's interesting. We weren't, you know, we we started that out as an incubator to incubate new business. And we have incubated some business, but it's more about, I mean, I feel like the teachers were the folks who came to the land, right. not the other I way around. I think you mentioned that the other night, that, yeah. that they had brought some some of their indigenous techniques to, to growing on this land, and they understood how to treat the land and, and in ways that, that maybe, you know, agricultural professors at the university might not have known about. That's true. Yeah. And they and brought their seeds, too. Oh, Beautiful really? seeds, oh, yeah. they had seeds. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Wow, that's great. When you were doing that, was there any thought toward, um, I, I don't know how to say this uh, diplomatically, like not not like a prepper mentality, but an understanding of setting up a local food co-op will make this place more resilient in the case of any sort of calamity that affects the grid, you know, and distribution systems and all that. Okay, well, can you define prepper? Because to me, that's yeah. like somebody in a crew neck sweater going to college. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, a preppy. Oh, okay. What's a prepper? <laughs> like someone someone who's like stockpiling, you know, weapons and canned goods expecting oh, Armageddon oh. at any no, moment. No, 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 no. Yeah. And I want to say COVID played out. No, it's more about we were the opposite here. We're just relying on big trucks coming over these passes, bringing us stuff. Yeah. And, you know, our kids in our schools are eating potatoes from who knows where. And yet we're this beautiful potato-growing region. And, you know, that taste of place or the terroir that Gary Nobhan writes about in Desert Terroir, we don't have that here. We don't have, like, this pride in, Mm. you know, like, in our schools, we're not serving San Luis Valley beef and potatoes and all the beautiful root crops and lettuces that grow here and that's not that wasn't a thing and we've been working really hard on changing that it's been an uphill climb because the price of this you know low volume high quality mm. food is so different than what you know a broadliner truck is bringing in this nameless faceless food that you know has very high volume uh, economics behind it so that's been really hard for our food service directors for our you know for our hospital for our restaurants to really be able to make it you know there was a restaurant called locavores that she um went on to another endeavor and let go of it but she really found the price point that she needed to serve her people didn't work out for her in Mm. the you know what she was trying to buy and i do feel that there's ways you know there was ways that could have been done and for our food service directors we actually partnered with the university of colorado and did a study that showed that like seven things were actually the same or cheaper than what you could get on these broadliners, which were mm. potatoes and mushrooms and onions and squash and apples and carrots and garlic and winter squash. Mm. Might have been eight. Yeah. But those things were all 
cheaper, but people just didn't realize that. Mm. And so we got our food service directors, you know, um, at least delving into at least those buy products. Those. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Huh. Yeah, we, we bought, uh, you <laughs> mentioned, um, oh, now I forget his name, but you mentioned the guy we bought our uh, cow from. We uh, George Witten. George Witten, right? Okay. Right, yeah. Oh, yeah. good. And Anya did a podcast with him and and wrote a profile of him for the the Crestone Eagle. Yeah, he and Julie Sullivan are doing amazing work. Yeah, yeah. and they bring in interns and yeah, they're doing yeah, all kinds of things. Yeah, we the interns. Yeah. But back to your prepper right, question then. Right. So really, what it's about is that we actually have a food system that we control. It's like a sovereign food system that we. Right. This is our food. This is the food we want to eat. This is what we want access to. This is what we want to grow. And these are the family farms we want to support. And it, I don't want to say that family farms didn't exist, but if you look at the statistics, you see, you know, how big ag and family farms and ranches are are really, you know, at odds with each other. Yeah. And um, and so we really wanted to bolster that system, infuse it with energy and resources. And, you know, I like Nick Chambers at the Valley Roots Food Hub likes to say, you know, you vote three times a day for the food system you want to see. And so yeah. I love that. And I yeah. think, <clears throat> you know, I so... And so during COVID, the Valley Roots Food Hub had about 90% wholesale uh, accounts, restaurants, grocery stores, um, and institutions. And when COVID hit, in two weeks' time, we went from 90% wholesale to 90% retail because families, you know, all these restaurants closed, and all these families were wanting food at their door. And uh-huh. when we ran out of, you know, beef because of all the things that were going on at the, you know, the packing plants and everything, in the Valley, we still had connections to the ranchers you know like george and julie who you right. know san juan beef who were um you know who were still producing and hadn't gone anywhere but these you know strong um local food chains you know were really resilient whereas these fragile long supply chains just broke it's fantastic yeah. it's like having a generator you know and the the power goes off your generator kicks <laughs> on but you got to maintain the generator you've got to keep it full of fresh gas and you got to change the oil and because when you have the crisis you can't count on it otherwise right, right? on brother yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'll write your ads <laughs> yeah and so you know and it's you know we are not where we need to be you know we're kind of like a garnish on the plate as opposed to being center plate mm. you know but but um it's a work in progress and yeah. the team that's you know running the local foods coalition the farm park the food hub they're just Really amazing folks, passionate, hardworking, and dedicated to the mission. So I have great, uh, great faith in the the future of that work. There's a cool project uh, just starting out. I'm sure you know about it. I, I can't remember the woman's name, but again, Anya's interviewed her. She is. Um, there's a family-owned potato farm, organic potatoes, fourth or fifth generation, um, and they. They wanted to find a way to keep the dust down when the potato fields are, are fallow. And they found that rye was a really good cover crop. Oh, you're talking about Sarah and Mike Sarah Jones. Sarah Jones, exactly, yeah. Yes. And so now they've got, the, they got a grant to plant rye, and they're getting local distillers, right, to, to make San Luis Valley rye uh, whiskey, out of the rye, so it, it's and I'm such eating a, great a cereal idea. from that rye. I mean, there's oh, really? a lot of that rye. You know, <clears throat> the rye resurgence is real, and uh, that cover cropping is yeah. I mean, that's one of the um, you know five tenets of good soil health, and soil health is really important to yeah. 
to this valley. Especially where it's so windy. Right. Know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, when I moved here in, uh, what year was it? But anyway, um, 1987, I was driving a horse trailer down the road on County Line Road near Center, and it was, you know, June, and there was such a brownout. Somebody dropped some four-by-fours on the highway and I are on the road, and I hadn't seen, and I just drove right into them, and what a what a mess that was. Oh. And it was just a horrible brownout. Yeah. I remember thinking, yeah. where am I? Yeah, Where am it's I? like another planet yeah. when that happens. It's but crazy. we have, you know, folks like the Moscow Hooper Conservation District that are really, you know, there's a star grant that the Colorado Department of Agriculture, I mean, we have an amazing, uh, Kate Greenberg is our commissioner of ag, and she's just amazing. But really, she's really infusing, um, infusing resources and support to producers for soil health and, and, um, and cover cropping is a really important uh, strategy for that, yeah. as well as like animal impact on the land and a diversity of cropping, keeping roots in the ground, all kinds of things that are yeah. really good for the soil here. What brought you here initially? <laughs> so me and my cowboy husband, mm-hmm. uh, outlaw husband, cowboy husband. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to talk about your love for outlaws here. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, came to the San Luis Valley, um, sight unseen, to work on the High Meadows Buffalo Ranch. and. Ah. We had been ranch hands at the Jim Marr Ranch in um, right at the point of Nevada, uh, Susanville, where California and point of Nevada kind of out there out in the oh, hinterlands. That's up near uh, Burning Man country, yeah, right? It may be. I've never been to Burning Man. I've been Man. to Susanville. <laughs> I actually had a fuck. I think a fucking animal stole my keys. Oh, no. <laughs> I was camping outside of Susanville, and we locked the car, the van. And I put the keys like behind a tree near the van and we were going to go for a ride on our bikes. And so we took, and this is, there are no other campers around. This is next to a stream in the middle of nowhere. We rode a few hours, came back, the keys are gone. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I put them behind that tree. (laughs) We looked everywhere. I was out there at night with a flashlight trying to get the, you know, the glare off the keys. They're gone, just gone. And some raccoon in his den has a sparkly uh, like a keychain, not just treat. one key either. There was the electrical fob that cost three hundred dollars to replace, and two or three other keys. Something I can't like what a blue jay wouldn't fly away with a no. But I think that's the kind of thing a raccoon loves. Oh, yeah. yeah, and that was that place was rich in wildlife. We had one of the only water mm. holes around on the Jim Mar Ranch, and the animals that would come to water there plus the wild horses it was amazing yeah. i had a i had a day where because our job was you know it was a dude <clears throat> ranch and it was a working dude ranch where they he jim mar uh, bob roberts he owned five ranches and you know the dudes would just like move the herd of cattle from one ranch to the other and it was helping out the operation too but um our job was just to keep the horses in you know tuned and trained and so i was out riding a gelding that needed hours on it and i got attacked by a wild stallion and it was scary Uh, i called him dinner plate because his feet were like big as dinner plates and the tracks that he left but you know my gelding it was no match for him and he was rearing up and my horse was rearing up and i managed to stay on but my gelding just tucked tail and ran but i'll never forget that wow that you know the whole experience out there was just wild yeah it was it was beautiful yeah, I'll bet. And I, 
Okay, well, that was step one to how you got here, but how did you get there? You grew up in Iowa, right? I grew up in Iowa, but I came, yes, I grew up in Iowa, but I came to Colorado to work at Rocky Mountain National Park in between my um, sophomore and junior year, and I ended up getting a job at Snow Mountain Ranch riding horses, which I've been, you know, a horse lover all my life. Did you have a horse when you were a kid? I I had I did I had Melody um Melody. yes <laughs> I named her after Melody and Gone with the Wind um yeah she was I was a 12 year old girl then I loved and that's my first horse and then after that I've always had a horse my parents said if I could that's buy the awesome. horse they'd pay for the board which oh. was you know, which was a good deal. Where's a twelve-year-old girl get money for to buy a horse? Yeah, no, for, uh, I did, was a babysitting fool and did wow. yard work and yeah. Man, that's awesome because I think all twelve-year-old girls want a horse. Yes, and you're the only <laughs> one who gets one. <laughs> Very few get them. Uh, yeah, and my parents might have pitched in a little bit a too. Little, yeah, a little <laughs> they were subsidy. good. That's yeah, but um, anyway, I got this job on Snow Mountain Ranch and riding horses, and you know it was uh, full time. We John McCroy, we'd ride six days a week with the dudes, and then on the seventh day we'd go out and look for elk because he was a, a hunting a guide and outfitter. <clears throat> and we just rode seven days a week. We got three hundred dollars a month room and board, and I bet you I had two hundred eighty dollars left at the end of the month because I never went anywhere. They gave us our food and our lodging, and I think we'd go out for a Saturday night dance, and that's mm. where the other twenty dollars went. But um, Anyway, I just didn't, you know, I thought, I don't need college. I don't need, this is the life I want to live. Mm. And so I stayed in Colorado, and and that's where I met my husband and second husband. That's where I met my second husband. And, and, uh, yeah, we just went adventuring, doing ranch work and out and about. And and that's how we ended up at the Jim Marr Ranch. Was he he a dude? He was a cowboy. He was a cowboy. He was, but he was an outlaw cowboy. In what sense? Um, Just... Didn't fit into modern society. Um, I mean, it's just a, it's a, I don't know if I can pinpoint it. You know, he had a long braid down his, you know, cowboy hat and a long braid. And and um, he's from Texas, had a drawl. He, he, you know, twirled and played and owned guns, you know, all the time. He's always twirling a gun. And, and uh, him and Curly Bill, you know, they were quite the, you know, pistol shooting pair. I don't know. <laughs> He was just, he lived outside of society for sure. And he was born 200 years too late. He would always tell me, and I believe that. And, you know, we'd go to the rendezvous. I don't know if you ever heard of the rendezvous, but it's where you can't wear anything or bring anything that's, you know, post-1840. And mm. they have all kinds of, you know, axe throwing and, and muzzle loading uh, contests and, you know. 1840? Yeah. That's an interesting Yeah, I mean, date. I'm just picking that number out of the oh, air okay. somewhere. Okay. But it was, you, right. it was, you know. <clears throat> you Pre-industrial. Had to, yes, you had to, you had to. And we spent a lot of time going to rendezvous and that was super fun. A lot of buckskin. Oh, yeah, you buckskin and yeah, yeah. <laughs> I went to a trapper's convention once. Yeah, and trappers would have fit right into this whole yeah. scenario. That was That was the first time I ate beaver. Oh, you ate beaver. I have to say, I have never done that. That was like a big thing. I, I was like 12, and my best friend was a trapper, uh, half Apache, half Italian. Really interesting guy. Anyway, he ran a trap line before coming to school in the morning, so he'd show up in math class with blood all over his pants, you know. It was <laughs> very strange. Well, I met Buck at the Terriol Reservoir, and we were all going to ride horses and do this Wild West. We had our long dusters, and we were all going to, you know, Terriol Reservoir is in Teller County. And um, anyway, there was a three-year-old, you know, flea-bitten gray, 16-hand horse, 
hard to handle. I just remember Buck just grabbed him by the side of the halter and swung himself up on him bareback and just mastered that horse, and I just fell in love. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. his name was Buck. Yeah, I Buck co- Rogers. Uh, not no. of the 21st what? century, Buck though. Buck Rogers? Yes. Are you serious? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> That was his name, but I always said Buck Rogers of the 18th century, not the 21st. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although, who knows? The future and the past could look more similar than than we imagine. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a book called The Great Bay that was written in 2010, and it was the 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 author died in around 2015, I think. I, I can't remember his name. Uh, Dale Pendle. Dale Pendle was his name. Science fiction book, and the premise of the book is there's a disputed election in 2020. Uh, the president is completely unqualified to be in office and, and he makes a mess of everything. And there's a, uh, a global pandemic that starts in 2020, right? Mm. And as a result of that, some other things happen and global warming the sea level rises so much that the waters from the San Francisco Bay go all the way into the the, the Great Basin of California and flood mm. it. And that's the Great Bay, right? Oh. And so it's, it's a crazy book to read. Uh, I read it in 2021 or 2022. And it's like, man, the, half the things that he's imagining in the future are happening right now. And what was the year it was published? 2010. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I like living at, you know, 7,800 feet. <laughs> yeah, not going to get flooded. Yeah. You might get burned, burned out, but... Right. Um, anyway, okay, so so you met Buck. Buck, Buck Rogers was your second husband. Mm-hmm. And your first husband was Kit Carson or... Uh, <laughs> What was his name? His name was Good Times Kelly, Good, Kelly Hutchinson. Are yeah, you I called him Good Times. But they called him Good Times Kelly. Uh, but yeah, he that was uh, in my early hitchhiking days, and oh um, yeah, and we were. I was hitchhiking the um, the Highway One in California. Beautiful, beautiful. Like around Big Sur. Or the whole. I started in San Diego and was going all the way up oh, to Canada. And nice. and he picked me up in the Napa wine country. He had his dog Rufus with him. I got picked up with my dog Leo. She was a little Siberian husky, and um, he was doing what nobody would do anymore. But it's you know we used to get our film in little canisters, and there was a whole route where you'd pick mm. him up and drop him off. And he was doing a four hundred mile route, and I rode his route with him, and. We just had a great old time and mm-hmm. said goodbye and and it I don't know a month or two later I just got was thinking about him I was back in home in Colorado in Grand Lake Snow Mountain Ranch and um I wrote a letter to the film company to Kelly and Rufus and it got to him and we That's did crazy. a meet up and we ended up getting married and you know we have two beautiful children and wow yeah that's amazing <laughs> but he had you know hidden he was kind of an outlaw guy too but more in the uh you know, biker realm, and he had he had issues, you know, addiction issues that surfaced. We managed to last four years. It was a lot of fun, but mm. outlaws don't make good husband material, it turns out. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I mentioned to you the other night the, the Bob Dylan line, if you're going to be an outlaw, you have to be honest. I think about that all the time. I mean, I don't consider myself an outlaw, although I've broke, God knows I've broken so many laws in my day um 
but you know, I've always my thing is like uh, I I've followed the laws that I thought applied to me. You know, like I I do. I've never felt. I feel like hyper. Um, What's the that's what right way to say this? Like it gives me pleasure to do the right thing that helps other people. Mm. So I feel like I'm uh-huh. I'm hyper sociable in that sense. Yes. You know, I never want to like do something selfish that other people have to pay for. But on the other hand, I've also always felt, even as a little kid, like I it's my decision finally what's right for me. Like, you know, and like I've always been really annoyed by right to uh, um, right to death laws, you know, like you're telling me I don't have the right to kill myself when I want to, if I want to, like, fuck you. It's my body. It's my (laughs) life. Right. I don't have the right to take mushrooms if I find that useful. Fuck you. I'll take mushrooms whenever I want. I'll fucking grow mushrooms. (laughs) And I used to grow weed in my... I mean, I pushed it too far. I was growing weed in my closet in high school when I lived in my parents' house, you know. <laughs> I remember one time my mother, their house was for sale. And my parents were nice suburban professional people. I can resonate with that. And um, they were trying to sell their house. And apparently when I was at school, and the real estate agent came and was showing the house and there was light coming out from my closet. <laughs> and they opened the Busted. door. Busted. And there's all this weed growing. And this is like 1970. Right. You can go to prison seven. for that. Yeah. Back in those days. And my mom was so cool, too. She was like, like honey, because she knew how sort of militantly, you know, self-reliant I was, even though I, you know, they were paying all my bills. Um, but I remember her saying, honey, do you think we could just move your plants like out in the woods, you know, because it's kind of awkward with the real estate agent. And, <laughs> that know. was, yeah, that was mellow. That yeah. was a mellow response I got. Yeah. Where have we gone wrong? Oh, I got that for years <laughs> until they just got tired, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting. Anyway, hitchhiking. Yeah, so you were, so we're talking what, 70s? 80s? Yeah, this was in the, you know, it's 70, 77. So it's right at the end of when a, a single woman, even with a husky, could kind of go out. I and guess feel so. Okay. I was very fearless, and I have you know maybe a naive um, optimism about other people. I I just I love people. I see their best. I am authentic with them, and I mm. don't feel like I didn't ever feel like I was in danger. I did have a, you know a couple of scary moments, but I was young and athletic, and you know. You got picked up by an outlaw. You ended up marrying him. <laughs> yes, I did. I did. People um, say, "Oh, be careful! You might get picked up by an outlaw." I'm like, yeah, I might. That's why I'm out here. <laughs> right? No, it was. I had wonderful experiences, and I, li- you know, I lived a really sheltered life. My parents were very. Mm. I was the firstborn. My mother, you know, was a virgin when she met my father. They. You know, she'd never been with anybody else, and and she just had a very different approach to life than I did. And I'm growing up in Iowa in the 60s and 70s, which Iowa, we didn't get the 60s to Iowa till the 70s. So, you know, we were in the... 60s were over by the time they got to Iowa. (laughs) Right. But we were doing, you know, the black lights and the, you know, the good music and everything in the 70s. And... um, Black yeah, velvet. Those velvet <laughs> I posters. Know, I love oh, those. Yeah, you're I miss talking... them. I miss them. Lava lamps. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I got a bit of lava lamp. 
So, so um, I just, there was all this experiential, you know, and question authority. And, you mm. know, and my parents were very staunch, you know, very staunch um, kind of 50s, you know, leave it to beaver family and beautiful. I grew up in a nest of love. I'm not disparaging it. But at the same time, yeah. at that time, I just le- yearned for adventure. And I have a very adventurous spirit. And, and so when I got turned 18, I just kind of burst out of the house with my thumb out and took off and headed west yeah headed west yeah headed west and you know but i do feel it was a pretty it was a safe experience i met all kinds of amazing people and and was just blown away by you know the whole world out there that i had been protected from and hadn't experienced and and uh, yeah i was experiencing in a big way you ever heard the expression we live our parents unlived lives i like it do you think it applies to you yeah i don't know um my father, maybe. My mother was very, very content to be home, and she'd be happy if she never went outdoors. But my father, I think he he did, uh, you know, he had a lot of unexperienced adventure that he would have liked to have done, I'm sure. Did he get any vicarious pleasure from your adventure, or was he too afraid and, and protective? Um, you know, my parents are an interesting interesting couple but they were so into each other Mm. that I don't know that they paid a lot of attention to what I was doing after I left to be honest I you know I think they were way into each other I mean my biggest uh, childhood trauma was them making out in front of my friends in middle school like stop that (laughs) but that was my parents they just were in their own little world and yeah and I just lost both of them in the last two years and how do you uh, how do you how did you experience that their being so into each other that it deflected their attention from you in a way was that did you feel cheated or or was it comforted like oh they've got each other i can go do my thing only during the dark side of my marriages because the dark side of my marriages i could have used some family connection and it wasn't there but in the adventurous side of life no i was I was out experiencing the world, and I could come back home anytime and be welcomed with open arms. But, but as far as being followed about, um, you know, through phone or letters or anything, it wasn't happening. So, I yeah. can relate to that. I I, uh, I have a memory of my parents um, having some issue with my mother, and my dad came home and. You know, my mom gave him the lowdown or whatever horrible thing I'd said or done. And then, you know, he, he would say, let's go for a ride. You know, we'd talk in the car and drive around. And I remember him saying to me, I was probably 10, 12, somewhere in there. I remember him saying to me, like, I love you. Your mom loves you unconditionally, no matter what. But we love each other more. And you need to understand that. Like, you're not going to ever turn me against her or turn her against me. We were with each other before you existed. Mm -hmm. And you only exist because of our love for each other. And I've told that story to to people. And some people have been like, oh, that's a horrible thing to say to a kid. But I experienced it. It's so comforting. Like, you guys have each other. That's so great that you really, you're such a good team. That makes me feel safer. Even if it deflects a little from attention and whatever. And then as an adult, it's the same as what you describe. I'd go off and and my mom would worry, but my dad would come. And ultimately they were like, yeah, give us a call when you can. But they weren't like, why haven't you called? And, you know, still to this day, there's my mom's not like, why haven't you called ever? 
And it's like she's got her own thing going on. It's yeah. cool. Yeah, no, I I call it this nest of love that I was grown up in, and it actually gave me this, I feel like, this optimism and great love for humanity right. that I have. And the, the confidence to go out and do what you did, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I couldn't wait to launch. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't get it. You know, I've been a foster mom for a long right. time, and some of the, those kids, they just, you know, they're not, they don't have like this, they didn't get that enough to you know have this sense of adventure to they don't have the launch base right that's what it is you know you can't launch if you don't have a solid base that's true yeah yeah it's a it's a strange thing because because then you can't get it later either i mean you can certainly heal later but you can't get that intrinsic sense of safety um that i think a little kid gets yeah that's so important yeah yeah it's rough. Um, so you, you mentioned the other night that your mom just died a couple of weeks ago. She did. Right? Yeah. And your dad? Yeah, two years before that in 21. So, you know, we got this, my brother and I, especially here in Colorado, got this rich time with her because she was such a storyteller. I mean, she was, mm. and and I will say her elder mind, her stories were a little bit more fantastical than, than I remember, but... Um, but I just got this rich time with her when my dad wasn't there anymore. Um, but she did tell me at Thanksgiving, she said, Liza, I just can't. I thought I could live this substitute life, but I just can't do it. Substitute and life. Without my dad. You know, her substitute mm. life was hanging out with her kids. And that just wasn't for her. She really wanted to be with him. And she did a crazy thing. She, you know, October 1st, you know, her dementia had gotten to a place where it was hard for me as a single person to work. And I was working, you know, the local foods coalition and my county commissioner role. And, and so we agreed as siblings to, you know, for her to go into an assisted living facility. And on November 7th, she at 1030 at night, this woman who you couldn't get to go outdoors walked outside at 1030 at night. And, and she was discovered at six in the morning by a woman who was walking her dog. And, um, she was, I assume she was looking for my dad. I spent a week with her, you know, by her bedside in the hospital and her recovering. She'd had a heart attack and hypothermia and hypoxia and, you know, myomyelosis where all these proteins go into your bloodstream. She just, it was, she's so resilient though. And she survived that, but she never really did recover from it. And, you know, three weeks later she passed and I was with her, you know, I got to be with her the whole time and, you know, it was it was a blessing because she wanted to be with my father. That's where she wanted to be. And she did tell us when she was younger, you know, when your father goes, I'm just going to lay down. I'm not going to eat or drink and don't mess with me. That's what she said. I did feel like saying, well, what about us? You know? Yeah. But she's, that was just not her thing. You know, she wanted, my dad was her life. So, but you know, it was magical. Mm. She had a beautiful life and, and her passing was very peaceful and it was a picture of her life, you know, and, and uh, yeah, it's she was a sweet mama, and I miss her. But mm. but it was a beautiful transition, and I'm very honored that I got to be with her through it. Same with my dad, actually. So and it seems like they both lived the lives that they wanted to live, which is again such a great gift to the children, right? Because I feel like the worst feeling must be the tragedy of. You know, uh, my parents, like, they just saved all their money. They never had fun. They never did anything they wanted to do. They never enjoyed life. It was just, you know, a waste. 
Right. That must feel horrible as a kid to think that. My parents squandered all their fucking money. (laughs) They went on cruises and trips with their friends and, you know, would have cocktail parties and bridge parties. And I'd hear them laughing downstairs, you know, (laughs) drinking Harvey Wallbangers till three in the morning. Like, they lived. Yeah, absolutely. I, I come from that same legacy. I love that bumper sticker on a camper that says, we're spending our kids' retirement. Yeah. Because <laughs> like- <laughs> your kids will be a lot happier. I mean, absolutely. I am. I, didn't, I inherited that old Toyota that's sitting in your driveway. <laughs> that's all I got when my dad died. You know? Oh, but it's, it's special. I'm driving my parents' car right there, that little Subaru. Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although, yeah. Was your dad an outlaw in any sense? No. No, not at all. He was a uh, he was a mechanical engineer, industrial engineer. He did travel the world, mm. um, doing you know setting For work? up factory, yeah, oh. setting up factory floors and that kind of thing. But uh-huh. no, he was very much a family man. He was all about coming home. He was quite the handyman. He loved his weekends, mm. you know, stripping wallpaper and varnishing floors. Stripping and- wallpaper. <laughs> My parents did that too. The steam things, yeah, horrible. <laughs> Wallpaper. But he loved all that. He was, you know, he had a rose garden. But no, he there was no outlaw to him. He was very, he was a, he was great. Mm. Yeah, but no outlaw to him. But I didn't, you know, I didn't pick my parents' yeah. path in the relationship world. And my kids, you know, when they struggle with relationships, I find myself giving them advice, and I then I tell them, you know, don't listen to a thing I say, actually, because <laughs> I that's not, you know, that's not been my strong uh, success <laughs> point in life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know. It's it's an interesting, you know, we live our parents' unlived lives. It doesn't necessarily mean they wanted to live them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know? Um, I think in my case, to some extent, like you, my dad was more adventurous and he got a lot of uh, pleasure in my adventures. Uh, yeah. Well, if I reinterpreted what you said, I lived the opposite of their life. Yeah. Yeah. They lived a very, they very much loved their home nest and right. I very much loved the great Right. Unknown adventure. Right. So. Well, and that's what gives us that opportunity that they did their thing. Now we can do our thing. We don't have to redo that, you know? Yeah. yeah. But you felt, did you feel compelled to have kids or did it just sort of work out that way? You know, it's the funniest thing. So I have a sister 18 months younger than me and she said she wanted to have 12 boys. And I was like, I'm never having kids. And yeah. it's funny. She never had children. And I had between, you know, my own kids, my adopted son, and my foster children, I probably had a dozen kids I raised. Mm. And I love kids. I, you know, I just, I didn't know I did. Um, I hadn't really spent a lot of time around them, but I really did enjoy being a mother and now a grandmother. And, you know, and I hope to be a mentor to them to, you know, to have some adventure in life and to know that they can be change makers if they don't like, you know, and how to eat good food and how to garden, plant a seed. I just, you know, yeah. So I'm happy. I'm happy with the path I took and, you know, it wasn't conventional and, and I did end up raising all those kids by myself, but, but I definitely taught them how to work and how to, and how to, um, you know, uh, find adventure. Yeah. And how to recover from, I mean, you know, your your marriage has ended. We haven't talked about that, and we don't need to, but I'm sure it wasn't easy no. in, in either case. Uh, you know, you, you've bounced uh, a bunch of times in your life, right? When, Which I think everybody does if they have right. an interesting life, right? You, you, you fall, and you bounce back up, and you fall again. And Yeah, your failures are the foundation for your the things that work. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Did you feel... 
I mean, I meet somebody like you who's doing all these things and starting this nonprofit and your county commissioner and you're raising foster kids and you're, you're, you're so actively involved in life in a way where I have always felt like a, an observer more than a participant. Um, like I was telling you about my sister, like she's much more of a participant, you know, she's like, I'm going to help these kids and I'm going to write a grant and I'm going to do this and do that. And, and I'm like, I wouldn't know how to start writing a grant or how to, and I guess like, because I've always traveled in my life, this is the first time I've ever like actually lived anywhere um, where I could potentially be involved. Cause I was living in foreign countries where like eh, politics, like I can't even participate, you know? Um, it's just, uh, I, I guess my question is, have you always felt, um, that, that things were open to you in a way that you could just enter and become involved or yeah. is that something you had to learn? No, I didn't have to learn it. I have always been a natural optimist. I just believe. And I think that's a lot of my, I believe if it needs, I mean, if I see something that needs to be done, I just believe it can be done. And, and barriers mm. are just you know, stepping stones to achieve your goal. And I, I've always been that way. And I think it does come from being in that nest of love where I had, you know, the complete opportunity to, you know, be myself and feels completely safe and, and launch like that. Mm. So I do, yeah, I do see that, but I, it's just inherent in me. So it, it comes naturally. What's your brother's life like? He's a he is a wild adventurer. I my brother he joined the Merchant Marines and and uh, traveled the world and he's the life of the party. He's the reason you know I he's a game he's always the game master and he's a great guy. He's uh, he's six years my junior, but um, yeah, I've always I've always enjoyed who he is mm. a lot. Sounds yeah. like there are some similarities. Yeah, absolutely. Both of you are sort of global thinkers and yeah is he live in colorado he lives in colorado but he just his third marriage he just married um he just married a woman from guadalupe uh, oh that's yeah. right yeah and you so he's that. uh yeah we're that's cool. i'm practicing my french to head down there for the celebration in march now ha- have his previous wives been uh outlaws in any sense uh, yes his second wife yeah i would say they were uh. isn't that interesting i haven't even looked at that before but yeah <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> His second wife was quite the outlaw, and she, I think she might have uh, ended up at the at the uh, Capitol on January sixth. So I oh. not an outlaw in my my path, but um, right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. She, she might literally be in prison even as we, we speak. We won't mention her name. No, she. No. I don't think she uh, crossed a line. But um, wow. Yeah. Do you have any kind of um, religious or spiritual uh, prism through which you view all these things? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. I mean, I really resonate with, you know, the sweat lodge and and indigenous practices, but that's not my heritage, and I, you know, don't want to just go around absconding other cultures. Um, I just feel that God is love, and I do think that there is a, you know, there is a higher a higher power. Um is the web of life that we're all connected to each other. We're all one. Um, I've been in the Baptist church and been born again and, and loved, you know, the Jesus that I, that I imagine who is, um, who is love incarnate, you know, and love is my mantra. I just feel love one another. I, I believe that's what'll be on my, 
the bag that has my ashes in it. Um, I just believe that we're here to, you know, practice unconditional love. And I think that it is, you know, that force of the force of the creation, that creator that, that, um, lives in me. Yeah. But I, you know, I resonate when I, I go to all kinds of different spiritual gatherings and I just love spirituality. I love, you know, practicing that. And there's a woman, Suzanne Rouget, who lives in the San Luis Valley, who does beautiful new moon ceremonies and, and things that she's gotten from like her Peruvian, her Peruvian uh, practices. And I resonate with those when I'm there. I just, I, I don't feel, I don't like laws and rules around, you know, religion and spirituality are two different things for me. Yeah. And yeah, so there is a non-answer. <laughs> to a non-question, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's such a broad thing. Do you feel, I mean, you said your your mother wanted to be with your father. Do you feel in any sense she is? I do. Yeah. I do. Even if it's just atomic, you know. Yeah. You know, molecular... You know, yeah, before he died, my dad asked me we he and I were talking about end of life stuff, and he was raised as a Catholic, but both of my parents were uh in fact, my father wanted to be a priest um and then he went to college to a Catholic college, and he he was a sort of an intellectual and he was reading a lot and thinking a lot and the more he read and thought the less catholicism made sense to him and uh one night he had a kind of a crisis and he he went to the residence of his favorite professor at the college who was a priest and my dad said, you know, explained to him, like, I'm having, I'm thinking this and thinking that, and I just don't know if I can, if this makes sense to me. And the priest said, uh, Frank, I haven't, I haven't told anyone this, um, but I agree with you, and I think I'm leaving the priesthood, and you're the first person I'm telling this to. There's a moment. Yeah. And, uh. Anyway, that was Father Chris, and that's why I'm named Chris. Oh, yeah. that's any, a cool story. Yeah, yeah I had a, um, um, you know, I was raised Presbyterian, and I went to a humanities class at Michigan State University in my freshman year, and I remember the professor um, was just, he just was an atheist, and he expressed that and said, "I religion is the opiate of the masses. I, you know, one of the ancient philosophers you know, Socrates or, or Aristotle or somebody said that, but I just remember being shocked by that. And it was, I mean, that moment changed my life where I started questioning, like, you know, my childhood, you know, teachings mm. and what I, you know, what I'd gone through, you know, a catechism and a, or this Presbyterian, you know, equivalent. And, um, and I just remember thinking, wow, what if it's, what if it's not? Yeah. And it was a, you know, it was a, it opened me up to so many new ideas. It was just. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the problem, you know, we make, it's this whole pendulum thing, right? Where we go from one extreme to the other and people expect things to be without nuance. I feel like it's so hard for, for us, just the way the human brain works to accept 
Yes, and it's that, and it's something else. It's not that, or it's something else. You mm-hmm. know. Um. Anyway, but with my dad, we were talking because he lost his faith, and so he was one of these people who had a God-shaped hole in his soul. You know, like it's. Oh, that's he, a cool way to say it. He grew up with this structure, and then the middle of it disappeared, and then he was like, "Well, but I've already got this structure built around faith." You know. And I think he was he was having questions about what's going to happen when I die. Like, am I just is this just over? Is it just a blank screen from then on? And 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 I I don't know where I first heard this or thought this, but my sense I told him my sense is that a life is like a raindrop, and when we die, the raindrop it hits the surface of a lake, and so the raindrop doesn't exist anymore, but the water that was in that raindrop, the substance of that raindrop rejoins this pool. Mm. And, um, you know, so individual identity ceases, but whatever spirit animated that individual identity continues to exist. And yeah, that's how I see it. And I, my mother, um, told me that she didn't believe in God until the day that I was born. And when she said she saw God, you know blow life into me and for me to go from blue to red and rosy and that gave her the faith that she carried just to experience childbirth and just seeing the breath of and I just feel like kind of that soul piece is kind of like the drop of waters that we Mm -hmm. all kind of have that soul which to me is a piece of God and or goddess and and that you know it goes back to the whole at the end and yeah yeah it's reunited if it's even separated at all. Maybe this is a good place to end, huh? <laughs> and Un- unity. Liza, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. What a cool lady, huh? Liza Marin lives in Sawatch, Colorado, uh, about 45 minutes across the valley from Crestone. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And I hope, uh, just a reminder, those of you who might be free in June who want to join us in Montana, please get in touch. And uh, if you have any questions, and uh, hopefully we'll see you there. All right. I'm going to play you out, as I normally do, with the great Carsey Blanton, reminding you that everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. I don't want to give the end away, but you're going to die one day. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play 
to the ground. 